Well, this has been a, a time of a lot of stress, a lot of loss, a lot of craziness. I am talking to more and more people that are going through loss right now. And um, it's just really gotten remarkable. I, I, this, this has just been a period. It seems like the, the counseling that I do kind of ebbs and flows anyway, but this is a real flow. <laughs> it just seems like uh, there's been so many people that I've been talking to, and they are experiencing loss. Um, just one of, my, one of my really good friends just lost her mother. And uh, she's been a caretaker for her mom for most of her life. And she's just kind of lost, you know, like, what happened? All this activity, everything that was focused here, and now suddenly just, just pulled, you know, just like that. Uh, a woman that I know, she, she lost her son to a drug overdose. And that has just been a devastating blow. And I've been talking to her for, gosh, five, six weeks now, and uh, just watching her going through the, the stages of grief. And, but that hole that is there in, in her life now is, is just not going away. Another woman lost her daughter in the space of a week. And now she seemed fine, and then she was diagnosed, and then she was gone within a week. I, I just couldn't even hardly process that, how quickly that happened. And then another man that I know has lost his job because of COVID, but it wasn't just his job. He was a high-end um, sound reinforcement engineer. So he was doing, you know, doing live sound for big bands across the country, downtown Disney, wherever. So it wasn't just a job for him. It was a vocation. Any of you who know about music, you know it just gets in your blood and it, it becomes so much of who you are. And he was the first one out and he says, if it comes back at all, I'm going to be the last one back when this is over. And he's just having such a hard time dealing with the realities of not being able to do his life's vocation, you know, his, his calling, as he saw it, to be able to, to be part of the band, be part of the music. Just so much loss, so much loss. And, the, and not only that, but in a more, I don't know, communal, collective sense, you know, the whole COVID thing, the whole racial unrest, and now the election that's coming up. I've heard so many people on both sides of the aisle talk about how they don't recognize their country anymore, or they don't recognize their own party anymore, and they're feeling more and more alienated. It's like, you know, it's almost like they've lost what it means to be an American, or lost what it means to be of the party of their affiliation. Again, this is real loss. Real loss. And all these losses are different. And you can say, yeah, some are higher and some are lower. But what's common to all of them? When you take a look at the loss of a person in your life, a central person in your life, a job, a vocation, or just a mindset, an understanding of the way things are, what is common to all? They all are forcing a question a question that we need to ask ourselves. Who are we when we lose the defining part of our lives? Who are we when we lose a defining part of our lives? Every time we lose someone, every time we lose something that is central enough in our lives that it changes the very ground of our lives, the ground that we walk on, we have now been kicked into a new journey for identity. Who are we? And I know I've done this in here before, but, you know, it's worth just another thought experiment. Who are you? Who are you? 
If, I, if I, you were pressed to answer that question, how would you answer that question? Are you going through the Rolodex in your mind of how you would answer that question, thinking about it? Okay. Are you saying, well, I'm a wife, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, I'm a parent? I mean, are all those roles that you play rolling through your mind? Are you thinking about your accomplishments? I'm a business person, I'm a sports person, I have done this, I have done that. I'm an author, I'm a painter. Are you thinking about your attributes? I'm a happy person, I'm a loyal person, I'm kind of a dark person, a little bit depressed sometimes. All those things that we think about when we think about who we are, all those things that we can imagine ourselves to be are natural. It's, it's so human of us to do that because as we live and breathe and go through life, what is it that gives us a sense of self? It's the roles that we play. It's the accomplishments that we have achieved. It's the attributes that we see in our personality and in our lives. But you have to understand, we have to all understand, that anything that can be taken from us is not who we are. If it can be taken from you, it's not who you are. Why is it so hard for us to understand? Why is it so hard for us to get our arms around an identity that is deeper, an identity that cuts underneath all the things that we can imagine that we do and that we accumulate and the roles that we play? Why is this so hard for us? Thomas Merton is probably the one we can credit with bringing the idea of the true self and the false self uh, into the mainstream back in the 40s and 50s. And of course, he's standing on the shoulders of Freud, you know, and probably Jung, uh, who, you know, it was Freud actually that uh, gave us the term ego in the first place. We had the id, the ego, and the superego, if you studied any of that in school. And the ego was supposed to mediate between the id, which was the wild, kind of pleasure-seeking part of ourselves, and the superego, which was the moralizing, conscious part of ourselves, in uh, you know the Jiminy Cricket part of ourselves that had absorbed all the cultures and families and churches mores and the ego was supposed to manip- you know kind of mediate between the two and psychoanalysis was built on making the ego stronger so that it could do its job. Now we use ego in a more general sense. We use ego in terms of the whole person, our personality and who we think we are and the way that we we relate to other people. So we use it in a more general sense. Merton is jumping off on that and saying, okay, that ego self, that self that you know, that voice that talks to you in your head, he called it a false self. And he, and he was contrasting it with a true self, which is deeper and, and, and you know, is, is beneath and transcends all of that. And I don't know if false self is the best term for us to use because it implies that there's something wrong with this ego self. With this, I'd like to call it a small self. Richard Rohr is calling it a separate self. I think that's probably pretty good. But there is nothing wrong with that egoic self, with that small self or separate self. In fact, it's absolutely essential. It's essential to who we are. It's essential to the way that we need to work. It's a necessary byproduct of just being self-aware. As soon as we rose above the, the animals, you know, in, in, in the Bible, as soon as we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we suddenly had a voice that talked to us in our heads. 
That's the voice that thinks. That's the voice that can think about past and future, think abstractly and do all the things in terms of judgment and differentiation and everything that we need for survival. It's a necessary part of who we are. But if we don't balance it with this true self that Merton is talking about, then things start to get out of whack. Take a look at what Rohr says. He puts it this way. Our small, our separate self is who we think we are, but our thinking does not make it true. It's a social and mental construct that gets us started on our life's journey. It's a set of agreements between us as individuals and our parents, families, school friends, partner or spouse, culture, and religion. It's our container that we create for ourselves. It is largely defined in distinction from others. This is us saying, this is me, you know, as opposed to you, as distinct from you. What's the first word that the two-year-old learns? No. No. Because they're starting to develop a distinction between their will and your will as parent, right? So this is in distinction primarily from others, precisely as our separate and unique self. It is necessary... But it becomes problematic when we stop there and spend the rest of our lives promoting and protecting this small self. It's like the small self, the ego self, however you want to call it, is really, if you think about it, it's our interface with the world. If the ego in, in Freud speak was the mediator between the id and the superego, our ego in the larger sense, the way we use it, is the mediator between us and all of the outside world. If you think about a computer, that screen you're looking at, that's called a GUI. At least it was back in the early days of Apple. It was a graphic user interface. That's our interface. That's how we interact with the hard drive on the computer and the data that's stored there. You know, we can move a mouse and we can do this and we can type. We have all these ways of interfacing with that computer. So our brain can interface with the computer's brain through this graphic interface. If you think about it, our ego, our small self, our separate self, is doing exactly the same thing between our true self, which is way down there and we don't access directly, and everything else in the rest of the world. This is how we connect. This is how we operate. This is how we survive, how we breathe through the day, how we relate to one another. This is absolutely necessary. We need this. But... We have to balance it. If we're not balanced with the awareness of a deeper, true, <clears throat> or essential self, then what happens is we end up living in fear. Because a small self is always interested in self-preservation. It's always going to do what it needs to do to protect itself. And it is always looking over its sh shoulder in warrior mode, looking for the next threat and how to deal with that and how to outplan it and outrun it and do all of these things that it needs to do. To live as if the small self were, was all there was to you is to live in fear. I have another friend that I just heard from last week. She had abdominal pains, went in, and got a diagnosis of stage 4 pancreatic cancer that is now metastasized to the liver. It's inoperable. She didn't know whether to try to do chemo or not because maybe it would give her another month and that month would be full of misery. What do you do? You know, she said, I just want to 
pray that I get through the holidays, that I live through the holidays. You know, she wanted to live until her nephew had their first baby so that she could see that. Now, more recently, she's thought she's going to go for the chemo and she's going to... What is she going through? Can you imagine? Some of you have been through scares like this, maybe, and you understand what she's going through. What that means when everything that it means to be you is threatened. I mean, why is it that we fear death? Because everything that it means to be me and if I think that this small self, this ego self, my roles and accomplishments and attributes are everything that I have and there is nothing else, then I'm going to be terrified of death, aren't I? Because what survives? Is there anything that survives? To continue with Roar, he says, when we are able to move beyond our separate self, it will feel as if we lost nothing at all. Of course, if we don't know that there is anything beyond the separate self, the transition will probably feel like dying. Only after we have fallen into the true self will we, will we be able to say with the mystic, Rumi, what have I ever lost by dying? Isn't that a great line? What have I ever lost by dying? We have discovered true freedom and liberation. When we are connected to the whole we no longer need to protect or defend the smaller parts. We are connected to something inexhaustible and unhurtable. The true self could not and cannot be hurt. This is a huge point for us to understand. We are so worried about our small self because we know how vulnerable it is. We know how fragile it is. We are constantly protecting it fearfully protecting it. The true self cannot be hurt. The true self is what continues. But if we are disconnected from the true self, if we never connect with it and understand that that's who we really are, we're going to live in fear, necessarily so. If we could really identify with this true self, realize that the essential part of us can't be hurt, how would that change the experience of our lives? How would that change things? How would that change the experience of our life? How would that change our anticipation of death? Whether we think it's 30 years off or whether we think it's next Friday, how would that change things if we really could connect this way? This is the, what we need to start asking ourselves. To know who we really are. To know that ultimately we can't be hurt, we can't be killed, we don't die, we continue on in some way. If we could connect with that, how would that change things? But this true self is elusive for us. It's hard to reach. And it's hard to reach, you know why? Precisely because we will try to reach it through the small self. Ugh. We're going to use all the tools of our small separate self, the way we think, the way we distinguish, and, and our words and our logic. We're going to use that to try to get to this deeper self. And it doesn't work. If we use the same mind and the same mindset that anchors us to our limitations, to our fears, it is not possible to get to the larger self, the true self. 
That, that self doesn't exist in rational thought. It doesn't exist in rational minds. We must completely step aside from that which limits us if we want to experience this true self in a very real way. And, and this is going to sound completely unusable to you probably. If you can speak it, if you can say who you are, that's not who you are. <laughs> the moment you put it into words, you have lost the thread. Because this true self can't be put into words. It can only be experienced, and it can only be experienced in real time. Even after you've had an experience of your true self, what you remember about it, that's back into words again. That's back into rational thought. It's a real-time experience that we can move through. Take a look at the way Merton talks about it. And when he wrote this, it's from a, a book called Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. Don't you love that title? Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. He had been uh, allowed to leave the cloister of his abbey in Kentucky to go to Louisville. I think it was for a medical appointment. And as he was coming out, he relates a story of coming out to the corner of Fourth and Walnut, which was right in the busiest section of the market district in, in Louisville. And this was back in the late 50s, I believe. And he had this experience. His whole life was based on moving away from the population, moving away from people, going into cloister, going into solitude and silence in order to find the connection with God that he was seeking, that he believed was there for him, that was his vocation. And as he walks on this busy street corner, suddenly he realizes and he has this flash, this revelation about how he's connected to all these people that he doesn't know and knows nothing about. But he feels the connection with them so strongly that he realizes that this is the goal of his contemplation. This is the goal of his life as a cloistered monk, was to establish more deeply the connection that he had with all of these people. And as he tells that story right after, he writes this. He says, at the center of our being is a point of nothingness, which is untouched by sin and illusion a point of pure truth, a point or spark which belongs entirely to God, which is never at our disposal, from which God disposes of our lives, which is inaccessible to the fantasies of our own mind or the brutalities of our own will. This little point of nothingness and of absolute poverty is the pure glory of God in us. It is, so to speak, God's name written in us as our poverty, as our dependence, as our birthright. It is like a pure diamond blazing with the invisible light of heaven. It is in everybody. And if we could see it, we would see these billions of points of light coming together in the face and blaze of a sun that would make all the darkness and cruelty of life vanish completely. I have no program for this seeing. It is only given. But the gate of heaven is everywhere. Wow. I'll have what he's having. So there's this deeper self. It can't be accessed directly, and that's the conundrum for us. We can't access it directly because that would involve thinking. And as soon as we're thinking, we're using the small self again. 
Sometimes, like Merton, it just breaks through. You might have had those moments, those peak moments, where you just felt the connection. I remember being in Chinatown in San Francisco decades ago, and I had that sense, being in such an alien place, you know, with the full chickens with the heads and the eyes hanging in the, in the windows and people speaking all the different languages. I just had that sense of connection. I remember that. I didn't think about it. I didn't try to do it, access it. I wasn't trying to grunt it out. It just was there. Sometimes, like Merton, that is going to happen to us. It will break in on us. But you have to be prepared as well. I mean, think about Merton's life. By this time, he had already spent 15, 18 years as a cloistered monk in silence, in solitude, in contemplative prayer. Remember we talked about Moses spending 40 years as a shepherd in the back of beyond before he was prepared to be able to see the burning bush for what it really was and to turn aside and actually spend time in holy ground? Merton had done the same thing. He was a connection waiting to happen. He had spent that time. I suppose there are moments that just break on us regardless. But when we are prepared, they break on us more and more. And when we voluntarily move into the place and create the environment, both internally and externally, that are ideal for these breaking ins to happen, it's going to happen more and more with us. And every time we do, we are finding something else about this true self this true self that is completely connected with God. How do we come to identify with the true self? What can we actually do that will take us there to realize finally that who we are can't be hurt? Well, Jesus tells us, Jesus shows us with his life how this happens. But once again, in reading the, the Gospels, we have to learn to read between the lines or we'll just miss it. We'll jump right on past. Because we tend to think of Jesus as fully formed from birth. He was laying there in the manger, and he already was fully God, fully man, knew exactly who he was and what he was about. We tend to think of him that way because of our theology. I mean, don't we? We don't really think of, of Jesus as starting more like us and then progressing and learning and growing, understanding things about himself that he didn't know before. And yet that's exactly what Luke 2 is telling us. When he was 12, remember? And his family went to Jerusalem for the, for the festival, and he stays behind, and they go a full day out with the caravan before they realize Jesus is not with the caravan. Full day out, full day back, three more days searching for him. Can you imagine... You, searching for your child for five days, your 12-year-old, who was home alone in the big city someplace, and you're trying to find your kid. Well, they weren't too pleased with him when they found him. But after that experience, what Luke says, maybe we should take a look. No, I didn't write that one down. What Luke says is that he grew in wisdom and stature. But he went home with them and submitted himself to them. He submitted himself to them, and he continued to grow in wisdom and stature. At 12 years old, what does it mean to submit himself to his parents? It means to play the roles that he was expected to play as a son. 
to start to identify with the family as his primary community. And we don't get any of that information in the Gospels. It's almost like when you're watching a movie, here's this close-up of Jesus' face as he's 12, right after this incident, and then it slowly just cross-dissolves or morphs into his 30-year-old face, and he's getting ready to go into the river to be baptized by John. It would be exactly a cut like that with nothing in between. We don't get any information in between, and it makes us crazy because we want to know. 18 unaccounted for years in Jesus' life. What the heck happened there? But if Jesus was submitted to his family, if he identified with the roles that he was expected to play as son, as brother, because he had brothers and sisters, as brother, as craftsman, as the heir to his father's business and shop, as businessmen, and eventually as head of household, because most likely, since Joseph is never mentioned again in the scriptures, he probably died, which made Jesus as eldest son the one who was head of household, who was expected to care for his mother, care for his younger brothers and sisters, care for the the business, and make sure that everything was going along so that the family survived. All of those roles... Did he identify with those roles? Well, we can't know that for sure. But there are clues that we can look at. And I suppose the big question is, what did Jesus know and when did he know it? About who he was, what his identity was. But we can say this, however he identified, how much he identified, his family was a huge part of his life for some period between 12 and 30, and we don't know how long he was there with them. But it would have been the ground of his being. It would have been the community that defined the roles that he played. Yet, at the same time, there was something deeper that was pulling him out and along until finally, for whatever reason, he goes out to be baptized by his cousin John in the River Jordan. And we do know something about that because that's where the story picks up again. And if you take a look at Mark, chapter 1, starting at verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son. You, in you, I am well pleased. And immediately then the Spirit impelled. Notice that word, impelled. It's an almost violent Greek noun. It it just has a lot of push to it. The Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and angels were ministering to him. This idea of being impelled into the wilderness. And we've talked about how the 40 days is, is symbolic here. We have 18 unaccounted for years. How long did Jesus stay at the home? How long and when did he go into the wilderness? We don't really know for sure. But it was longer than 40 days. I am convinced. (laughs) Can't prove it to you, but I'm convinced because I know how long these things take. For him to go out into the wilderness to the point of his complete exhaustion, to the point of being completely emptied out, to the point of starting to reevaluate everything that he thought he knew about himself. This is what is happening. And when he comes back, 
he is almost unrecognizable to his family and to his community, to the village of Nazareth. The people are confused. The people are outraged at what they see when he comes back. And it takes him a while to figure it out. Take a look at Matthew 13, verse 54. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue. This is Nazareth. So that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. And Luke takes it even further. Look what Luke says at chapter 4, verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, as they heard his teachings. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. He was so changed that they couldn't believe it. They couldn't get it out of their minds. They saw this guy grow up. They saw this guy work in the shop. What the heck? Now, Obviously, all that time that they knew Jesus before he went away, he didn't stick out in their minds. He wasn't something radically different. He obeyed or he fell into the norms of their society in their village before he left. He fit in. He didn't draw attention to himself. He seemed normal, quote unquote, right? He appeared at least to them to be identified with the roles that were assigned to him in his family and in the village. When he comes back, everything is changed. And his family literally thinks he's insane. Take a look at Mark 3, verse 20. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, his own people, that's his family, right? When his family heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The Greek there is literally, he was beside himself, which means he's lost his wits. He's insane. He's gone around the bend. The cheese has fallen off his cracker. He's just not happening anymore. And they wanted to take him home. He was probably embarrassing them. He was probably tarnishing the family name. And they needed to take care of it. And this forces Jesus to do a reset of his boundaries. Wouldn't it force you to do a reset of your boundaries in terms of how you worked with your family and the dynamics with your family? Look at Matthew 12, starting at verse 46. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak with him. And someone comes to Jesus and says, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whatever Jesus knew about his identity before he left, and to his family and village, 
He was typically playing those human roles and accomplishments. He was radically changed by his years spent away in that wilderness. Because when he came back, whatever he understood about his basic identity as son, head of household, brother, when he came back at John 10.30, he tells us as clearly as anyone can possibly tell the statement about their deeper self and identity. I and the Father are one. And then at John 5.30, he elaborates a little bit. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For years, for, for centuries, the debate over a passage like that has been over whether Jesus was saying that he was subordinate to the Father, which of course is in contradiction with the doctrine of the Trinity, which says they're all on equal footing. But that kind of theological debate over a statement like that misses the point entirely. What Jesus is saying is that he no longer identifies with his small self, with his separate self, with the roles and accomplishments and everything that he has played as a physical human being. He is saying that he no longer sees himself separate from everything else, in distinction to everything else, or that he needs to defend his own autonomy, needs to defend his own self-will anymore because he doesn't see himself in those terms anymore. What he's saying is he is now identified with ultimate reality that he calls Father, that we often call God. He identifies now with everything and everyone included in this ultimate reality. No separation at all. No disconnection. He has lost the sense of a separate self in the identification with this larger essential self. It's a complete realignment. Rohr puts it this way. The essential self is a place of utter simplicity. Perhaps we don't want to go back there because it's too simple and almost too natural. It feels utterly unadorned. There's nothing to congratulate yourself for. I can't prove any worth, much less superiority. There I am, naked and poor. After years of posturing and projecting, it will at first feel like nothing to move into this deeper self. But when we are nothing, we are in a fine position to receive everything from God. The Franciscan word for this is poverty. The Carmelite word is nada. If you know that from Spanish, it means nothing or nothingness. The Buddhists speak of emptiness. Jesus speaks of being poor in spirit in his very first beatitude which we've talked about before, doesn't mean lacking in spiritual gifts. It means having an attitude of poverty, even if you're rich, of the same emptied-out connection with everyone, seeing everyone on the playing field. A Zen master would call the true self the face we had before we were born. Gotta love that one. The face we had before we were born. Paul would call it who we are in Christ, hidden in God. Colossians 3.3. 3. It is who we are before we even have a conscious thought about who we are. That's an important line. 
The true self is who we are before we even have a conscious thought about who we are. Thinking creates the separate self, the ego self, the insecure self. The God-given contemplative mind, on the other hand, recognizes the God self, the Christ self, the essential self of abundance and deep security. Only when we stop using the mechanics of the small self, the way the mind actually works, the way we think, can we experience this essential self, this true self? So how do we do that? Well, Jesus tells us to pick up our cross daily and follow him. Now notice that. Pick up the cross daily and follow him. That sounds kind of scary to us. And we've misinterpreted by taking it too literally that we somehow have to be in pain or maybe we have to die as a martyr. It's not what he's talking about there. To pick up the cross daily, to die daily, to allow yourself to be executed daily is talking about letting go of that small self, letting go of who you think you are. Stop defending your own self-will. Stop defending and perpetuating the sense of distinction and separation from everyone and everything that the small self demands, that the ego mind demands, in order to have the illusion of its own survivability. This is what we're constantly doing. Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. All of that paradoxical saying, and Paul says so much of the same thing about the old man dying, it's the same thing. Are we willing to let go? These are metaphors for the death of the small or egoic self in the contemplative practice, in the way that we live our lives in contemplative spirituality. A final quote here, from this time from Cynthia Bourgeau. She's on the staff with Richard Rohr and a <clears throat> contemplative and a mystic in her own right. She writes, When we enter into meditation or contemplative prayer, it's like a mini-death, at least from the perspective of the ego. We let go of our self-talk. We let go of our inner dialogue, our fears, wants, needs, preferences, daydreams, fantasies. We simply entrust ourselves to a deeper aliveness, gently pulling the plug on that tendency of the mind to want to check in with itself all the time. In this sense, meditation is a mini-rehearsal for the hour of our own death, in which the same thing will happen. There comes a moment when the ego is no longer able to hold us together, and our identity is cast to the mercy of being itself. This is the existential experience of losing one's life in order to gain it, of picking up the cross and following daily, of letting the old man die of the sign of Jonah, of going into the belly of the whale and coming out the other side, of Jesus going in to the belly of death in the tomb for three days and coming up the other side. All of this imagery designed to help us to see the same thing. The rich young man coming to Jesus saying, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Sell everything you own and give it to the poor and come follow me. Are we willing to do that? Are we to the point, are we prepared to start to chip away at the ties to this small self, 
to the allegiance to the slavish, compulsive defense of that part of ourselves to see how much else is left. What Bourgeois is talking about is the contemplative practice that we've been talking about here for 13, 14 years now. The practice of stepping aside from that on a regular basis to continue to weaken the sense of our identity with that part of ourselves that thinks and talks and, and judges and separates so that we can spend time with something deeper. There's a Latin phrase called Coram Deo. It literally means before the face of God. We use it in the sense of in the presence of God. Last week we talked about Elijah standing before God and that the Hebrews understood that position to stand before God as prayer itself, to be in God's presence, Coram Deo, to be in the presence of God, to completely give our presence to this moment in the presence of God, is to experience this deeper self. We won't experience it separate from everything else. We won't experience it as standing alone in autonomy. We won't experience it as an expression of our own will. We will always express, experience it in connection with. I and the Father are one. Our true self will always be a reflection of the ultimate reality from which we came, from which we get every breath, from which we're going to return in some way that we can't imagine on the other side of death. But this is where Jesus is trying to get us. It is the practice of presence in whatever way we do it. Meditation, centering prayer, just walking about our lives, but deeply connected to what is in front of us that will bring us home to our true self, wordlessly, always wordlessly. And if we won't intentionally break our connection with our identity with the small self, then life will increasingly do it for us. Just as this loss that we've been talking about and that I opened with, Every one of those moments of loss that completely redefines the playing field for your life, completely redefines what you thought you knew about life and about yourself, is a moment when the true self has a chance to break through, if we will let it, if we will stay in that space, if we will take the journey of grief on that playing field instead of immediately jerking ourselves back to reinforce and defend and protect what we thought we knew before in our small self. But if we will voluntarily sell everything that we own, then we can start to find the freedom from fear that Jesus promises us. Because then we can begin to identify with ourself that can't be hurt. That can't be hurt. The blessed assurance of that can't even be imagined until it's experienced. Because we're human, and because we're human, we suffer from this really bad case of mistaken identity, don't we? We assume we are what we think. But practicing presence in the silence, in the solitude of letting the small self fall away, that's how we come home. And Jesus wants us to come home because it's there that the fear falls away for everything in our life and everything in our anticipation of our death because we finally realize 
We can't be hurt. Let's pray. Father, in you, we can't be hurt. In you, everything that we do and everything that we face, as difficult as it is, as painful as it is, as breathless as it can be, in the back of our minds we can know that we will survive, that everything really be, will be well, everything will be okay, in ways we can't imagine. Help us to be more and more in tune with you so that that knowing, that conviction becomes the deepest part of our awareness. That we realize that everything that we do here is important and is the connection that we live in our physical lives. But help us more and more to balance it with this deeper knowing, this connection with you that we can only experience, Father. We want to experience it more and more with you so that we can live in the freedom and without the fear that you promised us. We want to live in your kingdom every single day. And no matter what comes, to know that you are with us and everything will be all right. Guide us, Lord. Help us to drop whatever we need to drop in order to move closer to you every single day. And we love you, and we can only do that because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's all stand.